Episode 80 of the Passive Hang. It's Fayon here. Welcome back, guys. And today we are joined by David Wilson with Old School Moves on Instagram. David is a movement coach, anti ageism advocate, and educator based in Toronto, Canada. He teaches over at Spirit Loft in Toronto and also online via his own movement classes. David challenges our societal narratives around aging and what it means to become old. This was a very powerful conversation which challenged a lot of my own beliefs around the aging process. I really enjoyed it, and I know you guys will too. Let's get stuck in. I'll see you in the episode. All right, another episode of The Passive Hang. I welcome David Wilson onto the podcast, who is a trainer, teacher based in Toronto on the other side of the world. We've been uh, trying to tee this one up and we've made it happen today. And I want to make a warm welcome to you, David, onto the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm quite excited to be here. So, David, other than being a movement teacher, is also an anti-ageism advocate. And on your page, I really like this description, you help people find ways to participate in the creation of their own unique fitness. I really like that term. Yeah, and, and it, it ties into the anti-ageism uh, message because as we grow older, we actually grow more and more different from each other because of the great wealth of experience that we accumulate both uh, physical experience and other types of experience that makes us more and more and more our very, very unique selves. So as we get older and our bodies change as a result of these experiences and as a result of the natural and normal aging process, then that uh, makes it more and more important to be able to create a movement practice that is just right for us and that can be influenced by uh, certainly everything that is known and understood about uh, the, the principles of wellness and health and fitness, but that nevertheless is tailored to our bodies and, and, and our minds, our desires, our, our, our hopes. I really like this because, you know, you're nourishing yourself. Um, and I think this is opposed to a, um, a different idea, which many people might face, especially uh, as you rise through school, uh, go through university where you might be partaking in say like team sports. And that's really cultivated to a common outcome where you kind of almost have to like transform your body together with the group to, to, to get the goal, right. To, to win the trophy. But, um, I, I like this because you are right as, uh, as, as we grow and we cultivate more experiences as well. I think you learn more about your body and over the long term for a more sustainable practice as well. You need to find, I guess, uh, the way that you would like to practice for yourself rather than just, I mean, we've all seen it as well, you know, like that's why pro athletes can only last for a certain amount of time, right? Before they have to also change their ways. Oh, you, you've, you've said so much that I'd love to pick up on. Um, but I think most I'd like to pick up on the idea of a sustainable practice because so many of both the methods and the attitudes that we can bring to fitness 
aren't aren't really terribly sustainable. So I'm I'm sure that uh, you and your listeners are familiar with that old hackneyed uh, phrase: "No pain, no gain." Mm-hmm. And you know, well, that might resonate with some people for some time and actually motivate them for a little bit of time. I I believe that ultimately, if I believe that I need to be in pain in order to practice or in order to practice well, ultimately, I'm going to give up on that practice simply in the interest of self-preservation. I mean, and that's not just my physical self-preservation. It does pretty nasty things to me mentally. If I believe that I have to constantly be putting myself in pain and distress in order to grow and develop. So one of the things that I practice and one of the things that is my really only hard and fast rule with my own clients is to practice today in a way that makes you eager, excited, and capable of practicing again tomorrow. And that puts a completely different spin on things. I think that it also sets us up for being able to practice some form of movement for the rest of our lives. Because of course, we are going to change. Of course, we will uh, either develop capacities or we will lose capacities as we age. And that is perfectly natural and it is perfectly normal, but that doesn't mean that I need to stop moving or that I need to give up uh, on being interested in in how my body can move through the world with as much confidence and competence and playfulness and joy as I can possibly bring. So that's how I like to approach movement in my own life. And it's, it's, it's what I hope to um, instill in, in, in the people that I work with. So talking about your own life and experience, I read that, you know, you haven't been a personal trainer for all of your life. This was actually something that you picked up in, later ages as well, uh, where you mentioned that you were actually quite sedentary beforehand. So can you take us through that? Like what what happened? When did that happen? And what caused the impetus for change? Well, by sedentary, I would say that I didn't have a, a, a fitness practice that was consistent. So I, for the vast majority of my professional career, was a high school English teacher. And, you know, you can imagine the number of hours that I would spend either prepping lessons or marking papers and how it it would influence the amount of activity that I could bring into my life. Now, it's not that in all my spare time I was uh, sitting on the couch watching TV or reading a book, uh, but fitness was kind of something that I did when I felt that I had time for it. It wasn't something that I made time for. I did uh, in my 40s become interested in a soft martial art known as Aikido. Mm -hmm. And I practiced that for some time uh, for maybe seven or eight years. I can't remember exactly how many, but uh, even then, I think that I was more interested in practicing Aikido because I was getting to practice with other people and I liked the social element of it. When, when I look at back at my time practicing Aikido, I 
I didn't have the kinds of attitudes then that I have now uh, toward movement, toward myself. I was incredibly competitive um, and I brought uh, a competitive edge to Aikido, which you may or may not know is known as the art of peace. So bringing, <laughs> bringing a competitive edge, it's like, it's like competitive yoga, which you also see people being competitive about that all the time. Uh, but I was kind of making myself miserable. So it's not that anybody was putting this on this on, on, on my, myself other than me. Uh, I was making myself kind of miserable as a result, always comparing myself uh, quite negatively with others. Uh, I've, I would have to admit that for the vast majority of my life, I have suffered quite terribly from perfectionism hmm. uh, and being able to let go of that perfectionism is in, in fact coincidental in timing and probably because of uh, what I then came to, to, to practice and now become as a movement teacher later. But to back up with a story, um, I practiced Aikido for a number of years and then I really started getting the message from the people at the dojo. So my sensei in particular uh, was starting to give me the message that I was too old. Mm. And nobody really wants to stick around where they're not wanted anymore. And so I abandoned that practice. It was quite painful for me at the time because I think I just mentioned to you that uh, a good part of my social activity was also wrapped up in, in that practice. And it was something that I really enjoyed, uh, that the interaction with those people. And quite by accident, I fell into uh, a studio that had a completely different approach to movement. And that was more about starting where you are being aware of the stories that you are bringing with you uh, to your practice and, and looking at those things and deciding whether those stories are useful to you or whether they have become outdated and perhaps not so useful. So at the age of, oh, my mid fifties, certainly my mid fifties, even approaching my late fifties, I committed myself in a way that I had never committed myself before at a physical practice. So I started practicing more and the more I practiced, the more curious I became because having been told that I was too old in Aikido and also getting that message a little bit from uh, a doctor that I was seeing at the time around a knee issue. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was a little bit stubborn about it. And instead of just taking those messages for granted, I decided to be curious about finding out what my body could do, accepting that certainly, you know, the body of a, of a, of a man in his mid 50s is not the same as a man in his you know 20s 30s whatever i i decided to be really curious about what my body could do rather than being constrained by an untested completely untested uh belief around what maybe my body couldn't or shouldn't do mm -hmm. and you mentioned here that uh, some of these narratives were kind of um, uh, pu pushed onto you, but can you maybe like share what are some of your own sort of um, biases in your own narrative that you were starting to uncover as you were walking through this process that you um, had to overcome? 
I, th I think that you raise uh, such an important point because we swim in a sea of ageism. Uh, we are exposed to ageist ideas and beliefs from our very, very earliest days. So, for example, the images that we see in children's books of people who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and how they're depicted often as quite uh, decrepit. So thinking of the uh, you know bent over little old lady, little old man walking with a cane. Uh, you think of images of very, very uh, inactive uh, people sitting with their hands folded and their heads down. Uh, not being engaged. And certainly the idea that it was inevitable that uh, I would age into um, a physical state where I could no longer be really interested and engaged in my life. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, I was uh, constrained in my thinking, not only by ageist beliefs, in other words, fear of aging, but I was also constrained um, by ableist beliefs, which is the inaccurate belief that I have to have a certain level of capacity, both of body and of mind, to uh, lead a, a, a meaningful and fulfilling life. Mm. Yeah, you are right. Um, and it's even, I guess, uh, construed when you see maybe like those images of, of people like that, where uh, they'll be like, oh, that that's almost like cute, you know, uh, where it becomes um, perceived as a as a good thing to be like in that state, less able when, you, when, when you're old, right? I certainly have heard that term, you know, like the, the cute little grandma or, or whatever, um, which is us actually like, I guess, um, in the end, taking away the power of capability of, um, uh, that, that person as opposed to, um, uh, yeah, like, uh, I, I guess like pigeon and holding them into this, um, stereotype. Mm -hmm. Very much pigeon holding them into a stereotype, which has very significant, very, very significant, outcomes in terms of health and well-being. So you may or may not be aware of a longitudinal study that uh, suggests, and if this is this is gold-plated science here, it's four, sorry, not gold-plated, it's 14-karat gold science. So it suggests that people with positive attitudes and beliefs around growing older can live up to seven and a half years longer than people with more negative attitudes and beliefs. So having positive beliefs around aging can, can do some amazing things. So for example, even if I, and this, this just slays me, every time I say this, I still go, wow, to myself. Even if I have the genetic marker that predisposes me toward dementia, if I have positive attitudes toward aging, I am putting myself at significantly less risk of developing dementia, like 50% less risk of developing dementia, even though I might have the marker that predisposes me toward it. 
So these attitudes and beliefs around aging and imposing these attitudes and beliefs as trainers on other people around aging, they're not good. It's really, really not good. So when, for example, we look at, to use your example, which is just a lovely example because it actually suggests a certain misguided, but nevertheless sense of benevolence where you look at the little old uh, woman or the little old man and say, oh, I just want to give her a little squeeze. Isn't she so cute? Well, this is a person. Would would you say that about uh, a 35-year-old man? Would, would you say that about an 18-year-old woman? You know, thinking that this person is cute and then all of the things that go along with that cute, frail, cute, maybe diminished cognitive capacity. So frailty, by the way, is not is not something that is a necessary uh, companion of old age. So frailty has as much to do with, if not more to do with lack of physical activity and not moving our bodies and and believing that in fact some of the things that we begin to experience when we're in our 30s 40s and 50s are the result of aging rather than the result of inactivity those are the things that are the greater contributors to frailty which isn't to say i certainly don't want to uh it's called gray washing aging which is presenting a more positive view of aging than is really the truth mm. you know if i tell the truth about aging we can all experience we can all expect to experience or most certainly most of us some loss of physical capacity and some changes i might not actually characterize them as losses some changes in mental capacity as well nevertheless that doesn't mean that all of the things that we have been presented as being inevitable with aging are the truth. So, for example, let's talk about dementia again. When I first started looking at this, I thought that the incidence of dementia among older people was in fact far higher than it actually is. Hmm. So the World Health Organization suggests that uh, only, I believe, eight to eight to nine percent of uh, the population of people 65 and older uh, can expect to experience dementia. So that is a significant number, but it is not the same 20 to 30% that most people think. So a lot of people think that it is inevitable that we will uh, experience dementia and mm -hmm. all end up in uh, long-term care uh, homes in one way or another. While the reality is that the vast majority of us uh, will retain uh, the ability to stay in our own homes very much until pretty much the last few months of our lives. So the, the view of aging that is the reality, so it's not that it's a more positive view of aging, it's simply a more accurate view of aging. It's far less scary than the myths that are out there. Yeah, well, it's always like the power of narrative and our own narratives, right? Um, I think we can all experience that in our own lives, right? Where you put your focus to something and then it 
uh, it seems to manifest uh, better if you have a more positive view on it as opposed to a, a negative uh, view, right? So I can really see how that turns into actual health outcomes um, as you age. Um, in, in this case, in in the in the dementia case, and um, uh, I can even uh, relate to this, I guess, personally, because I've got two grandmothers, um, and they sit on. Uh, those two sides of the the spectrum one has uh been struggling with i guess the aging process especially after she's gone through um like a, a heavy surgery where uh it's been more negatively perceived and her i guess uh outcome from that versus another one who has always remained very optimistic it's like it's worlds apart right and so uh I personally, I I am experiencing what you are talking about here, um, uh, so I'm not surprised by it. Well, I feel very badly for your grandmother who's having a harder time of it all because so much of how we feel is influenced by the society in in which we function as 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 aging people because we are all aging you're aging i'm aging uh that just means that we're alive which in in, in my estimation is a good thing um but even within the healthcare system uh it's it's well documented pretty much around the world that the healthcare system itself is incredibly ageist as well and uh, just becoming aware of some of the ways that older people are denied care, uh, not given as much care and attention as uh, people who might have similar conditions but are younger. Um, these are these are really important things. So uh, you know your your grandmother is uh, dealing with all of those things as well. Not not to mention going into a, a doctor's office with you know a, your your adult child and the doctor talking to your adult child rather than you hmm. about your medical condition or calling you sweetheart or darling or all of those really diminishing things, making assumptions about you before you've even been examined. And these are very, very common things to happen uh to older people so much so that there are are guides on for older people on how to go to the doctor and insist on the kind of care insist on the kind of care that other people get not preferential care simply the same kinds of care that you would have received as a younger person now i want to go to this statement that i think you shared um uh recently and it really struck me which was uh you said um old is not bad the alternative to old is not young it's dead um mm. and that really i guess uh just just hit home for me and um you kind of touched on this uh with this dis discussion but i want to dive a little bit deeper which is um how uh, to this this respect for the aging process and to talking about it, I guess, in more actual terms and separating it away from, I guess, attaching these uh, qualitative terms um, mm. to old and and young. Where, as you mentioned, like frail doesn't need to mean that you're old and and frail. You know, that's like a separate quality in and yes, of there itself. There are many young. There are many young and frail people out there as well, but you've got me up on my soapbox now. Good job. <laughs> uh, so the idea that young 
means anything other than having not lived for very long. And old means anything other than having lived for a long time. That's something that I, I really am very interested in challenging. So young typically means, and this is how deeply ageist even our language is and our use of languages. We use young to often mean things like vibrant, interested, energetic, engaged, capable, sexy, attractive, all of those things. Well, why can't an older person also be those things? So many people who are older are still very energetic, very vibrant, very interested and engaged, sexy, happy. In fact, the studies around happiness suggest that People are happier at the beginning and ending of their lives rather than in the middle, a phenomenon known as the U-curve of happiness. Mm. So beginning to get rid of the use of old as a negative term to the point where people will say, oh, I am you know, 60 years young. Pardon me? Why young? Mm -hmm. why, why do I have to associate young with simply a number that is my age? Or even saying age is just a number. Well, yes, but it is a number and it is an accurate number. It doesn't mean anything other than I've lived for 60 years. It doesn't mean that I am frail. It doesn't mean that uh, I, I am, you know, sitting on the couch reminiscing over uh, what things were like when I was younger and, and thumbing through photograph albums of my grandchildren, unless I want to be doing that. Uh, it, th that age, th that number means nothing. And, and when we, when we complain about aging, when we insist on calling, uh, you know, people young man or young woman, when they are older, like I, I have been called young man this year by a clerk, by, by more than one, on more than one occasion, by clerks in a store. And they think that they are that they are paying me a compliment. But in fact, what they are doing is that they are not giving me permission to grow older. They are saying that the only way, the only way to be of any value in the world is to be young, so much so that all appearances to the contrary, I am going to call you young as a sign of respect. So again, this is another manifestation of this kind of benevolent ageism that is out there in the world. Yeah, and it's it, everywhere. It feels like that, you know, that's the most dangerous type of it where it's just masked as a as a kind act, right? Um, so you feel like you're doing like the the right thing but in fact uh, it could be pr promoting something else um and i think this goes to the point that uh yeah you really need to be i guess looking and respecting individuals as to like who they actually really are um mm -hmm. and then seeing past i guess uh what um what narratives you might just unconsciously attach to it just because of i guess um one leading fact which might be that they are 
X amount of years old, right? And then because of that, you you assume Y, Z, X, um, all the all these other traits and qualities, which might not actually be true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the one of the questions that I get asked most commonly uh, on 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 my Instagram account is is how old are you? And I have no problem with that question. So I am sixty three years old, but that question always comes with certain assumptions around it so it's it's either are you are you living up to my idea of what a person of however many years old you are is and should be so before answering that question i will almost always ask well i'm i'm very i'm i'm very interested in giving you the answer but before you before I give you the answer, would you mind telling me why it's important for you to know and how that information will help you in some way? And I think that that's a useful way to to, to think about uh, our own assumptions around age. So when you want to know somebody's age, why is that exactly? How is that actually going to help you understand them, get to know them, uh, a, a, a little bit better. How is that going to give you any really meaningful information about them? Especially if you go back to the first thing that we said in this wonderful chat that we're having together, which is that as we grow older, we actually grow more and more unique. So knowing one 63-year-old man means you know one 63-year-old man. It doesn't mean that you know anything about what it's like to be 63 because there's no one way to be 63. There's no one way to be 75. There's no one way to be 92. Um, There's a multiplicity of ways, which is exactly the same as it is to be your age. So however old you might be, um, or however old, like, you know, let's say a you know, 33-year-old woman. If I know a 33-year-old woman, I know a 33-year-old woman. I don't know all 33-year-old women. And I don't know what that's what it's like to be 33, necessarily. Yeah, I think the, the, the point drive, driven home for me is especially this thing that, um, uh, say, even if you met another 63-year-old person as well, it could be completely different to your own experience of being 63. So then, you know, it's it's, uh, unfair for you to, I guess, use your own biases and own experience to just automatically translate what you've experienced to that person and just assume, oh, because you're like same age, that you must be like the same in so many different, so, so, so many ways. And, and certainly it's it's at, when when people ask that question and try to use my age as a predictor of how they are going to age or what they might be capable of, they are ignoring factors that are in fact far more important than my age. So how many times do I practice a week? What do I eat? What kind of socioeconomic background do I come from that might have given me certain privileges to have access uh, to trainers, to coaches? that they might not have access to? What sorts of opportunities, in fact, did I have as a younger man that have influenced how I am able to uh, participate in the world? So these 
social and cultural and economic factors are incredibly important as well. And when we put it all down to the individual and, and, and we think that we can predict how we're going to age as a result of how this particular guy ages or doesn't age, we're, we're not really looking at all of the factors that are going to influence our own aging process. And we're maybe not looking even at the modifiable at the modifiable factors that we can influence. So we can't all influence the same modifiable factors. So for example, if I'm in a socioeconomic position where I need to hold down three jobs until I am in my uh, you know, 70s, that is going to influence how I can move through the world and, and, and the types of uh, health that I can expect to have, uh, especially if those jobs are, are incredibly physically demanding. But there might be other modifiable factors that I can influence. So, for example, how much water I drink, uh, to a degree, the types of food I can purchase. Although right now, uh, here in North America, at least, and I'm pretty sure in Europe as well, we're undergoing a significant period of inflation where, in fact, it's very hard to buy healthy food. And being aware of those socioeconomic factors that influence aging, I think, makes us better people because now it also helps us to uh, make decisions around how we're going to vote, how we're going to think about uh, aging as we ourselves age into those years. So one of the great influences in uh, my work as uh, an anti-ageism advocate is a, a woman by the name of Ashton Applewhite uh, who wrote the book, uh, This Chair Rocks. And in that book, she reminds us that when we discriminate against older people, we are basically discriminating against our future selves. Mm -hmm. yep. If we're lucky, if we're lucky to go back to the point around, you know, the opposite of old is not young, it's dead. So I really hope to continue to grow older. Mm. So for a lot of the listeners here, I guess well, we come from um, uh, practicing and, and teaching movement, you know, uh, I guess what are some common biases that you might see existing in the um, fitness and wellness context that, um, you know, we, we should be aware of, you know, I say like walking into a class or teaching someone one-on-one -on -one that, um, yeah, I, I think would be useful just to point out um, just so that we can be uh, catch our own selves. Mm -hmm. um, I would say the number one thing to be aware of is the importance of assessing rather than assuming. So uh, a, a, a very well-documented phenomenon, not just among personal trainers, but among physical therapists, is actually underdosing exertion. Mm -hmm. So... Um, as, as assuming that the person you're working with can only deal with very lightweight rather than uh, dealing with the principles of progressive overload, which, you know, I'm sure your listeners un understand where we need to be working within a certain capacity level if we are to expect uh, positive adaptation to take place in our bodies for us to become uh, stronger in some, in some ways for us to develop stamina. So when we when we do not treat our older clients with the kind of respect that they deserve, we're robbing them of the opportunities 
to develop in the same ways that we uh, expect our younger clients to develop. Also, to go back to my uh, my hard and fast rule around practice in a way that makes you eager and excited to practice again tomorrow, I can practice for a while and and not see very much happening. But if I continue to practice and I'm seeing no improvement, I'm just going to ask myself why I'm practicing. Yeah, I might be getting something social out of it and I might continue for those reasons. But if we're not uh, using what we understand about exercise science to load up our clients, to uh, help them to be stronger, to help them to develop stamina, to help them to develop balance and power, those would be the four big ones for older people, strength, cardiovascular endurance, balance and power. If we're not trained in being able to do, to help our clients in those ways, and if we're not helping our clients in those ways, then we are doing them a vast disservice. And we're asking them to spend time on things that uh, aren't helping them as much as they could. Mm, yeah. It's, um, it's funny like that, how you might, as as you say, like start immediately shielding them away from, I guess, hurting themselves because mm -hmm. you might suddenly be, if if someone of an older age walks through the door, you might be a bit scared of, I guess, going too far, right? Rather than, as as you mentioned, like um, just performing the assessment and then loading them up as you would normally, like everybody else who's i guess uh own curve of let's say for like strength development is always going to be individual anyway right some people progress slower than than others who might progress faster and that can also be age independent mm -hmm. exactly exactly and this doesn't mean to say that we throw caution to the wind but we don't throw caution to the wind with anybody. I mean, we all perform our, you know, PARQ assessments and we, we, we look at how people move. We assess what, what we can do. We, we uh, make reasonable estimations of, you know, one rep maxes and we adjust accordingly. Why aren't we also doing that with older people? Mm. You know, so assess, don't assume. And I would say that the main thing is continue to be ambassadors of hope rather than minions of fear. So when I am speaking to my older clients and all I'm talking about is uh, fear of this imaginary future incapacity or you know, fear of falling or fear of whatever. There's more to life than fear. And this isn't to say that we shouldn't be aware of those things, but they can't be the only things in our narrative. You wouldn't talk to somebody in who was, you know, 45 about the, the only things that you would talk to them about regarding their fitness and wellness journey being fear-based. So why are you doing that with older people? It's, it's cruel. It's cruel and it doesn't open up 
avenues of possibility to people. And isn't that really what we want with physical capacity to be able to move with more confidence and competence through the world? And especially in sedentary cultures, such as North, such as the North American culture, for sure. Um, I, I'm in fact very, very lucky because since I didn't experience a lot of strength and stamina training when I was younger, I in fact can do things with my my body. My body will do more things with me now than it could at any other point in my life. And I'm talking about even when I was a teenager, there are things that I can do now and I can do quite easily that I could not do as a teenager. So letting go of this sense of hopelessness as we age and instead just inviting people to be curious about investigating things that they might want to do. No. And of course, avoiding catastrophic events is one of those things. Mm -hmm. I know I certainly want to avoid catastrophic events, but I also want, I, I still want to learn how to surf. I still would like to go surfing, something I've never done and something that I would love to do. You know, one and of the I, best places is to come over here to Australia to do it. Well, there, there you go. It's a date. <laughs> um, so, I mean, you mentioned, yeah, there are some things to be um, respected in the aging process. And, you know, um, maybe for like a lot of the listeners here on the podcast, uh, unlike yourself, like we're training from like a young age, um, investing in like all these different practices, uh, let's say the strength practice, because, you know, that's a common one for, for everyone. And, um, uh, it's, um, I guess an under, uh, an understanding that especially through your thirties or 40, there's, there's like a, a biological, like, I guess, strength potential peak. And then after mm -hmm. that, you know, um, it's going to be harder. So I guess what what's your advice for maybe uh, listeners here where your body is going to change as you get older and maybe some of the potentiality that you're experiencing now will not be um, as large or um, I, I guess, you know, your strength will decline as well. Mm -hmm. What's your advice on how we approach that as we age, as we get older, you know, mm -hmm. um, it, how do you how do you re reframe that or yeah is there a, a guess, sort of your own experience that you've gone through to um uh, you know reshape the attachment that you might have to that side of the practice that that is such a, a fantastic question because it it gets at something we were talking about earlier which is not only ageism which is the fear of aging but ableism which is the fear of changes uh to our physical or mental capacity and I would go back to, to what we were saying in that moment earlier, which is what makes life meaningful and, and what makes life fulfilling? And, and is there really just a very limited number of ways having to do with lifting a piece of iron over my head that makes my life meaningful and fulfilling? Or can I be curious about how maybe as my strength capacity changes, perhaps I'm not uh, as engaged in uh, some more extreme forms of strength. But are there other ways of expressing strength and being curious about strength, for example, in different body positions, maybe some more uh, you know, body weight forms of strength? 
that could be interesting to me in, in different ways and maybe help me to uh, maintain capacity of strength in different vectors rather than just a few. So maybe strength, maybe I want to hold a little bit more loosely onto my identity as a strong man and be curious about other things that can also be meaningful and fulfilling to me and pursue those things as well. So I think when we hold really tightly onto a specific identity, and I think you see this with some athletes, certainly not all of them, where their identity is so wrapped up in what, what they have been able to do athletically that it's very difficult, very, very difficult to make adjustments. I was just listening to a podcast the other day uh, featuring Abby Wambach, who uh, was the captain of the uh, women's soccer team in the U.S. And it, as she is now no longer uh, playing soccer competitively and is, you know, looking at moving into her own uh, older age. Not, not, I mean, she's not, she, she would be probably characterized as middle-aged right now, but as, as she is, is beginning to anticipate, um, later stages of, of her life and changes in her physical capacity. She's curious about less competitive ways of training with herself, mm. ways that are more stimulating to her uh, mentally that can engage uh, different aspects of her physicality than that maybe she's explored before. So the, the, the capacity of the human body is is just so fantastic. So maybe as I'm aging, I don't need to hold so tightly onto the things that I that I that I found more meaningful when I was younger. Maybe I can let go of some of those things and uh, hold on to some other ones, but not hold on to them too tightly, and always be interested in is the story that I'm telling myself still a useful story to me? Mm -mm. Or is it a story where now I am beginning to do myself some harm? So my own journey, I think, has been as much a journey about how I think about things as a journey toward you know, being able to do more things with my body than I was able to do before. Yeah, it's kind of like always being intentional with what you what you are trying to do and, and reflecting on those intentions like continuously to um to inform what decisions and actions that you make, right? And um I like that example that you uh that you brought up there with, with that um with that athlete because it relates back to what you mentioned yourself before about this like uh I guess this um light and dark side of competitiveness um, mm -hmm. that uh, exists within all of us, right? And, you know, you can harness that for driving yourself into positive action and making positive change, but then you can also um, destroy us and make us uh, destroy ourselves when you say you become attached to, let's say you've done like this huge deadlift, right? Like, um, mm -hmm. And then you're like, wow, that's like the best thing ever and you're always comparing to that state of yourself where you like lifted that amount of weight and you want to hold on to that for um, as long as possible. But up until a certain point, 
like you might have to let go, right? And you might have to go, okay, well, I'm also no longer that person and I have to accept ah, this transformation of self. But you are. So what got you to the point where you could do that deadlift? Yeah. I and, 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 and in my, in my opinion, you're still that person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe you're not looking at being able to do that deadlift again, but that interest in the process, that uh, willingness to be curious, that willingness to be patient with yourself, that ability to pay attention to what your body was telling you so that, for example, you didn't blow your body to bits before being able to do that deadlift. You're still that person. Hmm. You are still that person. And who cares whether you can do the deadlift at the same level? You are still that person. You can still bring that awareness, that self-respect, that self-compassion, that playfulness, that curiosity, that critical thinking. These are the things. These are the things that are going to keep us interested in movement and interested in ourselves and our lives and our relationships to each other as we grow older, mm. as we grow through our lives, because we do call it growing old after all. So you've mentioned curiosity uh, quite a bit, but I know on um, especially your Instagram profile, you mentioned um, compassion and playfulness as being key qualities that you like to um you know, champion and cultivate. Um, can you speak on these two qualities and, you know, why they're so important sure, to you? Sure. And, and, and that goes back to what I was saying uh, earlier about myself. So um, I, I struggled under the burden of perfectionism for many decades. And uh, perfectionism is a, 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 a very cruel, cruel master which shuts down all sorts of things. So if I feel that I have to be competent at everything I do, I'm only going to be interested in a certain number of things. And if I can't do them right away, then I'm going to assume that I can't do them at all. Um, I'm going to constantly be comparing myself to other people and often unrealistically. So, so I might be somebody trying something for the first time, being a rank beginner, and still have no problem comparing myself to somebody who's been doing the same sort of thing for a good number of years and has far more experience than I have. So as somebody who struggled with perfectionism, I found it very, very important for me to find ways to let go of that. And being curious was one of those ways. So when I'm asking myself the what if question, when I'm curious, success is defined by noticing, not by doing. Mm. So curiosity helps me to be observant, which is very, very useful to me as a mover, helps me to be aware and it also redefines success in ways that are less harmful to myself. So that success becomes about the noticing and about using that information or choosing sometimes not to use that information 
and and being present in what I am experiencing rather than being caught up in some sort of idea of myself or my future self that that isn't really helping me at all. Mm. So with the curiosity, there is, of course, the self-compassion. So certainly for somebody like myself, who who was and still has to consciously fight against perfectionism, it's important for me to be patient with myself. It's important for me to treat myself and 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 my body in ways that I would treat a friend. So uh, you know, I, I can tell that you've read some of the pinned posts on my Instagram account, and something that I I, I write and talk about is that my my body is not a whipping post. It's not uh, an old shirt to be tossed in the rag bag and 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 discarded. My body is my constant companion that supports me in so many ways that I don't even pay attention to half the time. Like I don't control my heart beating. I don't know what's making it possible for me to see in this moment or feel in this moment. My body is supporting me in so many ways. My body is the most supportive friend that I have. It's keeping me alive. Mm -hmm. So when I'm asking new things of it, things that it maybe hasn't done in a while, why wouldn't I give it some time to adjust? Why wouldn't I treat my body with kindness and nurture it along in exactly the same way that I would nurture a friend rather than saying, come on, body, you're going to do this whether you want to or not, whether you're ready or not. That's not a kind way to be in the world. That's not a kind way to be with myself. And I do firmly believe as well that the way we talk to ourselves influences the way that we talk to others. So as I have moved through the world as a better person, as a result of being a better mover, as a better person to myself, I think that I've also become a better person toward other people as well. Because when I develop the practice of compassion toward myself, of giving myself time, space, patience, not expecting myself to be able to do things right away, letting myself evolve and change, that puts me in a habit of mind where I can afford the grace to other people to do the same. And on playfulness? Oh, playfulness. Well, playfulness just makes things delightful. <laughs> uh, why wouldn't I want to play? And, and again, uh, I have a couple of dogs. And uh, I don't know if you've ever watched dogs in a dog park, but dogs want to keep up the game. They want to keep the game because the game is just so wonderful. And you, you watch dogs play. And even when there's an incredible mismatch of size and strength, you can see the dogs are figuring out ways in relationship with each other to keep the game going. And, you know, of course, sometimes one of them oversteps and there's a little bit of a growl, maybe a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a fight and they back off and shake it off. But 
you have this sense of delight and playfulness. And when I bring a playful attitude where, again, it's reinforcing this idea of, well, what if I did this? I wonder what, what the influence would be if I did that. And how could I take this in a different direction and, you know, just keep it going. So sometimes I, in, in, you know, I, I don't mean to misrepresent my own practice. My own practice does involve a lot of, you know, kind of, traditional strength work, but it also involves a good amount of playfulness. So for example, I'll take three moves from three completely different domains and just play with putting them together in different ways. So like things that you would never think to put together. And now, okay, well, what happens if I try to combine this thing with that? And, you know, sometimes I'll just kind of, you know, fall on my face, almost sometimes quite literally, but, um, it's, it's always interesting to me, and it, it keeps my eyes open for possibility and potential and relationship. I think playfulness puts us in a different relationship with ourselves, which then again also puts us in a different relationship with our environment and with other people in terms of simply being able to perceive possibility and being receptive to opportunities that are aware in the moment rather than coming to whatever we're doing with a predetermined sense of this is the way it's going to be today. Now, I want to talk a little bit about your teaching approach and then relating it back to, I guess, these, these three qualities. Um, how do you um, sort of uh, try to nurture these um, emergence of these qualities uh, in your students uh, when you're teaching, like either classes online or in person? I think something that's very important is to encourage people to start where they are. Um, I think that a good part of fitness culture, um, without necessarily explicitly doing so, almost pushes people toward doing, moving too fast, too far. So sorry, moving too far, too fast. So, I, I think that it's very useful to become aware of our own capacity, because especially if we haven't moved for a while, we don't even really know what our own capacity is. We, we might not even know how we like to move. So I, I love to spend time with people offering different movement suggestions and in inviting them to explore where they are before moving necessarily into areas where they are beginning to experience some discomfort. Um, because I think working with discomfort is a skill. And especially if we haven't moved in a while, we might actually mistake or not be able to differentiate between discomfort and pain. Hmm. So I think certainly in the early stages, when I'm working with somebody that I haven't, uh, who may not have moved for a while, might be returning to movement uh, after you know a, a long period of not moving for whatever reason, or maybe you know somebody who was never particularly uh, active at, at at all, you know, curiosity about well, what can you do? And let's look at all of these wonderful things that you can do. A lot of people, I think, come to uh, a trainer 
uh, after a hiatus or not working for a while, already beating themselves up saying, oh, yeah, I've spent way too much time on the couch and, you know, I really haven't taken care of myself and, um, yeah, I can't do, I'm not very strong, uh, I can't really uh, do very much. Well, well, already, what a terrible burden. What a terrible burden that uh, somebody like that is, is laboring under. So the more that I can do to begin to say, hey, look, look how far you can reach. Well, look how great your balance is. Um, wow, look at you. You just did, you know, three chair squats. So helping people to see that they uh, there actually is capacity and ideally giving them something where they can see that if they work on things, capacity can change and develop as as well pretty quickly so develop an appreciation for the ways that all of our bodies no matter how in shape in shape in air quotes or out of shape in air quotes they may be our bodies are still supporting us su supporting us in multitudinous ways and we can we have capacities that we haven't even explored, especially if we have been sedentary for uh, quite some time. We don't we we don't even know the wonderful things that our bodies are capable of before we even really embark on a training program. So helping people uh, come out from under uh, a mindset that is already self limiting, I think, is an incredibly important important thing to do in the early stages of training. Mm, yeah, I agree. Um, and you know, looking uh, I know if, on your website, um, one of the one of your offerings is, I guess, uh, a class around the development of balance and coordination agility, um, mm -hmm. uh, which you say uh, you like to teach using uh, the principles of skill acquisition. Mm -hmm. And I was interested in this because I wanted to discuss, um, hear your views on, yeah, what do you view as the as the principles of of skill acquisition? Um, one of my, one of, uh, a man who has been incredibly influential, uh, is, uh, Jeremy Fine, who is, uh, a, a fantastic teacher of, of skill acquisition. And I, I think that one of the really important things when we are acquiring a skill is to put ourselves in a zone where we can acquire the skill and where we are practicing success more than we are practicing failure. So with so many skills, um, the, the desire to do the skill is so great that sometimes we practice in, in ways that aren't really paying attention to what the limiting factor of that particular skill is. So I think that it's very important when, when working on skill acquisition to look at what the limiting factor might be. So for example, in, in, in the case of balance, which you just referred to, it can be any number of things. It can be, for example, you see a lot of people uh, when asked to do a balance task, they're so nervous about it they become immediately rigid. Mm. And so 
the ability of the joints to adjust to the minor perturbations that are always there as bipedal human beings, uh, the minute that they become stiff, their, their balance becomes worse rather than better. Um, so becoming aware as, as a coach, but then also somebody who is practicing a skill of what the limiting factors might be, and maybe not practicing everything at once. So that's certainly one of the principles of skill acquisition that I think is incredibly important. So for example, in a balance task, if I'm having difficulty rooting uh, the tripod of the foot, so I notice, for example, that my big toe mound is always lifting, I might take away the balance task and, and work on something that is going to encourage me to keep my big toe mound down and rooted, and then go back to the balance task rather than insisting on, okay, I'm going to stand on one foot uh, and, and basically fall out of it over and over again, in, in, in which case I'm not really practicing balance, I'm practicing falling, which has its, its, its own merit, but then I'm not really practicing what I set out to practice. Also, I think that something that Jeremy Fine uh, really brought home to me, and, and, and again, keeping in mind my own perfectionist mindset, is letting yourself practice in an easy range for some time where you are being successful at the task for a good 80 to 90% of the, of, of, of the attempts, because that's going to be teaching you something as well. And it's very interesting when you're practicing something that you perceive as easier, and then when you can't do it, pay attention, because that's a really, really important moment. So spending equal time on something that might be an easier task, something that might be a medium task, and then maybe even less time on something that is more significantly challenging to you. Uh, recognizing what the zone of development really is and how it's not working at the hardest level for the entire time. And in fact, practicing solidly for 10 minutes, going away, leaving it for a day or two and coming back, that has been proven to have a greater effect on people's ability to pick up on a skill than uh, working for hours and hours and hours, now beginning to get into all of those stories that we were mentioning uh, earlier uh, that are not necessarily useful stories for ourselves you know, learning to let things go and practicing it in, in a variety of different ways, keeping it interesting and, and learning not to get so caught up in the success or failure of the ultimate task, but to pay closer attention to the uh, components that might go into the building of that task and not pushing ourselves ahead too quickly, mm -hmm. giving ourselves time to integrate, become more sensitive to the skill that we're developing. So for example, in hand balancing, for example, being able to really begin to sense things in your hands, being able to, to, to sense when, um, when, when the, the, the relationship between your body centers in the upside down position. And I don't need to be hand balancing to do that necessarily. 
I really like that because it's um, like sometimes the external aesthetic quality of what you say you're recording yourself might not be changing, but the internal quality might be shifting a lot, right? Um, and that's what uh, is almost more important as, as you sense through it um, uh, and how you're feeling in that moment. I think there's yeah all these other deeper layers of learning which is embedding through your mind as you go through that experience even though if you mm -hmm. just view it on the purely external uh, visual layer you could get frustrated because you're like oh it's just looking the same right and you're not being cognizant yeah. of all these other changes that might be happening within your experience. I, I like to think of skill acquisition as not really learning the skill so much but learning how to learn. Mm. So, and, and that means that now the skill of skill acquisition is a transferable skill to virtually everything. Uh, and it's that paying attention, learning how to, how to treat yourself, how to begin to break things down into uh, their component parts, recognizing your own most important limiting factor in a particular moment and choosing to work on that even if you're letting everything else go, because most skills that we're looking at, they are, they're quite complex. So you look at some of the, you know, the big target skills that are associated with movement practice. And I'm, you know, I'm talking about things like uh, hand balancing, of course, is a big one, juggling for some people, uh, doing a muscle up, all of, all of those sorts of things. They're incredibly complex. If I am trying to focus on everything at once, I'm not really going to be able to necessarily focus on the things that I need to focus on the most. So, you know, not getting too caught up in, I like what you were saying, not getting too caught up in the shape, but becoming more interested in everything that's going on around that shape. If I'm, if I'm looking at it from an artistic point of view, almost seeing the negative space around the shape rather than the shape itself. Uh, I find that in, in all honesty, far more interesting. And, and that also means that no matter how I age, well, I guess it does matter to a degree how I age, I can still be interested in hand balancing, even if I never get my, my hips over my head again. Mm -hmm. It's separating yourself from being so outcome dependent to just being like a ex experience, um, Mm -hmm. experience inhabitant i would say yes oh i love that i might have to steal that <laughs> that's a phrase oh well, um I, I guess david you know it's um been wonderful chatting with you today um i was just wondering you know in in terms of what you got planned upcoming safe for, for this year um yeah um I guess for people in the Toronto area, but then I guess, uh, I know you have quite a few online offerings as well. Like, um, what's on the cards? Uh, well, I, I continue to teach, uh, through a wonderful studio called spirit loft and they, uh, I, I, I offer an online class, uh, through them as, as well as some in studio classes for people who are here in Toronto. But, uh, the online program is, is, is really one of my favorite things to teach. It's a Move Well, Age Strong program, which runs in five-week cycles. 
And uh, each of the cycles has a, a, a different focus. So for example, right now we're in uh, uh, a stamina energy and efficiency cycle, but we just went through a playful strength cycle and we've done uh, spinal wave cycles and things like that, where we're looking at uh, one kind of dominant focus, certainly not letting everything go, uh, everything else go at the same time, but we have a dominant focus for five weeks. And so people can build some uh, confidence and, and, and competence over that five weeks rather than being uh, offered something completely brand new and different every week. So there's that. I will be continuing to do some uh, anti-ageism or pro-aging uh, speaking and offering. So you can certainly stay abreast of that uh, through my Instagram account. Uh, which, you know, we can certainly share, I hope. Um, yeah, looking at, uh, looking at actually uh, doing a free offering associated with uh, back to the back to roots um, internship and mentorship program offered by uh, Luke Davies and Samantha Emanuel. I think we're in fact going to be offering a free open workshop uh, to basically anybody who's interested around some of these uh, concepts that I've been referring to today uh, regarding uh, ageism and how it can manifest itself in, in movement spaces and, and also beginning to combat some of our own internalized ageism as well. So uh, you can stay tuned for that. So it's all, it's all a work in progress, which is the kind of work that I like the best. It's always an ongoing piece of work, which is what keeps life interesting as exactly. well, right? So exactly. yeah. Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, definitely share all the links to your profile and everything. So really recommend um, listeners, if you're not already following already, you know, jump on um, and just look abreast for all of David's updates um, because I think, yeah, you're doing really important work out there as we all are. So I wanted just to end on one final question, which was um, in your website, you have a nice uh, photo where you're smiling very happily with an ice cream. And I wanted to ask, what is your favorite ice cream flavor? Licorice. Oh, licorice. I, I know. I know it's <laughs> not everybody's thing, but. I don't even have. know where to find that. Well, it's hard to find. It's hard to find, but uh, yeah, good licorice ice cream uh, followed closely by uh, mint chocolate chip. Very unique. Very unique. <laughs> yes. Well, yes. you are a unique individual, David. I appreciate you. Thank you for sharing your time and your thoughts on the podcast today. And uh, it I think was that's a it. real pleasure being here. Like, thank you so much for this opportunity. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. Episode 80, guys. That's a wrap on the passive hang thank you very much for sticking around listening all the way to the very end i hope you got a lot out from that episode i did you know david shares a lot of very provocative thoughts on his instagram along with very fun movement ideas as well so if you haven't been following him already i really recommend that you go over to his page and check him out otherwise also, I'll include his details on how to get in touch with him in the show notes. All right, guys. Well, thank you always for supporting The Passive Hang. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to share it around with a friend. It really helps grow this community of like-minded people who are interested in this growing physical culture. 
Remember, if you want to get in touch with me, you can find my details on thepassivehang.com. Otherwise, you can jump over to my own Instagram. That's at Fayonp, at P-H-A-O-N-P, and send me a message. Thank you once again. I'll see you in the next episode.